0: make the experience joyful and energizing. And uh, so the way I kind of approached this was like uh, maybe there are some of you here who have never been discipled or in a discipleship relationship and so maybe this uh, workshop would help you know what kind of mindset to have when you get into that kind of relationship with somebody. And then maybe there are people here who are like, okay, I'm really uh, praying that God would give me someone that I could invest my life in. Well, then who do you look for? What are the qualities that make it joyful and energizing? Because you don't want something that's just terrible, right? I don't. I don't like to do things I don't like to do, right? And if we're going to have the joy of Christ, then our relationships and how we spend time with each other should be joyful. Uh, before we get started, someone look at Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. It's not on the page here. It just kind of came to me. And if you would uh, read that, Hebrews 13, 17. They may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Okay, so uh, it says they keep watch over you as those who give an account do this so their their work will be a joy not a burden, for that's of no benefit to you. And uh, I'll tell you a story before we get started while others are gathering. This guy was at a retreat and he came up to me and he said something happened to me at the retreat I really want to talk with you about would you be willing to disciple me and it's like I didn't know him very well Um, if he was a Christian I thought he was just barely a Christian and I said well Lance will why don't we agree to meet for six weeks and uh, after the six weeks then we can see where things are. And when you're first getting started, sometimes it's really important to have a, a, pr- a set period of time to see if this thing is gonna work out. So I met with him and he told me the story of what had happened at the uh, retreat and why he wanted to meet with me and he really didn't give me very much to work with. When I would ask him, And I'll tell you what he told me. He said, I was on this retreat and I was walking through the woods and I thought back to when I was 14 years old when my dog died and I just fell on the ground and just started sobbing and weeping because my dog died. And I think somehow God was involved in that. That's what he gave me to work with. And I'm thinking, okay, where do you begin with that? And so I started asking him questions, and every question I would ask him would be yes, no, and I don't know. Those were the three answers I got. Week one. Mary? No, that's all there were. Uh, week two here's one. Someone can have this one. Week here we go. Week two, I mean, I did not want to go to this appointment. It's like, dear Jesus, him getting sick, me getting sick would be good. Him getting sick would be better <laughs> to where we don't have to meet. But sure enough, he shows up, and I had thought through questions to ask him. And I, again, it was yes, no, and I don't know for an hour. Very uncomfortable. We also met in a gas station, a little... Uh, lobby side area of a gasoline station so the setting really matched what was going on there and uh, by the time week six had come I had done every question I knew of and came up with nothing and we came to the end of the time and I said so Lance how has the time the last six weeks we said we would do it six weeks and we've done this six weeks how has this been for you and he said I don't know. I said, well, has, then the, does that mean it's been bad? He said, well, I don't know. I said, has it been good? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he, I said, so do you want to continue meeting? He said, I don't know. And I said, well, let me, can I just say something that I do know? And I said, the six weeks we've met, I've really tried to find out who you are and what was going on in your life, and you haven't given me much to work with other than the dog story. And, you know, Lance, I don't think I can help you. I really don't. Um, What kind of help do you think you need? I'm thinking psychological (laughs) mental. (laughs) I said, what kind of help do you think you need? He said, I don't know. And I said... Well, Lance, let me tell you, I think I do know, and if you want to know what I think, then you're going to need to call me and ask me for another appointment, because I'm not going to tell you today, and I never got a call, and he left school, and I don't know what happened to him, but, you know, that's part of what I'm trying to set up here is that if you're going to invest your time regularly in someone, then there needs to be a level of them feeling like they're getting help and you feeling like it's a good investment for you, a good time. So uh, I think everybody's here, so we'll pray and jump into the Uh, blanks that I provided you and we'll have to move pretty fast to fill in all those I think. So let's pray. Oh Lord, as we uh, think about getting help ourselves and letting someone really be a mirror to us and a conduit of truth to us and as we think about being that someone else we need your wisdom and your grace in this hour I pray that maybe something would be helpful. That uh, there are people here with questions and needs, and that uh, your word and what we're going to talk about would be helpful to them. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay, John one forty-two. Who wants to read that? John one forty-two. Somebody, yeah, okay, back here, Javi. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is which one translated is Peter. Yeah, so this was like, as far as we know, the first encounter of Jesus Christ with the guy who we know to be Simon Peter, the uh, Simon Peter. apostle of Jesus, and Jesus. Looks at him and he sees something more than what Peter says sees, and he says, "You are Simon." And uh, Howard Hendricks says that the word Simon has a Hebrew root that means you are wishy-washy, you are spaghetti, but I will, you will be a rock. You will be Cephas. So somehow, Jesus, in selecting Peter, he saw something in Peter that he didn't see other places. Now, someone read verse 47. Verse 47. John 1. Okay, Tyler. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Okay, and uh, Nathanael... Jesus saw something in him. Now it's pretty interesting that Jesus did not select Nathaniel to be one of the twelve. When you look at the list of the twelve, you don't find Nathaniel's name. But if you go back to the John chapter 21, verse 2, uh, you'll find this. John 21, verse 2. This was after the resurrection. And uh, they were out fishing, it says in verse 1. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. They said, we'll go with you. So they went out. So here are two people in John chapter 1 that Jesus saw something really wonderful in both of these men. He saw strength in Peter, from spaghetti to a rock. In Nathaniel, he saw someone that had no guile. But when you get to Luke chapter 6, verse 12, when Jesus went to spend the night to pray about, to the Father, who would you have me to invest in Guess what? He only picked one of these two out of chapter 1. And he had seen something in both of them. So that makes me want to say to Jesus, what's up? You know, why didn't you, why didn't you pick Nathaniel instead of Judas? Hello? What was that all about? And I would like to talk to Nathaniel and say, what was it like to not be picked by Jesus to be a part of the inner circle. Now, Nathaniel might have said, I couldn't do it because I had a job at Quick Shop. I don't know what the circumstances were in Nathaniel's life. See, we don't, we don't know the circumstances surrounding this. But uh, one thing that is pretty clear when you read the New Testament is that Jesus had a large group of people who seemed to be hungry to follow him and he picked only 12 of them To be with him and spend time with him. And we don't totally know why he picked the ones he did. I wish that he had had a uh, list of selection criteria, right? To where then we could get it right. But we know even though he was the son of God and he spent the night praying, that not all those twelve worked out that well, right? Uh, Judas kind of had a little problem. And uh, so what I want to share for you, it's really, it's very hard to take the Bible and come up with a, a list of criteria that you could say, this is the biblical list of criteria to invest people in. You know, if someone come up with that, I'd love to have it. Because it would uh, make me feel a little more comfortable when I decide to spend time with this person and not spend time with... But somehow it boiled down to Jesus praying and sensing God's leadership to invest in people, and uh, that that may be a missing component in the way some of us select. That we really don't pray about it. We don't ask God to show us that we just sort of sort of do it with whoever's handy, or we just find someone. So what I've listed is four qualities that I've seen, that a lot of people have seen. In fact, I I read about 12 books on the subject of discipleship 20 years ago. And I made a list of criteria that these disciple makers said they looked for in someone. And I I made this little chart, and I did it on a dot matrix printer. That's how long ago it was. And I had this little chart that had all the little squares and columns and who said what and everything. And basically it came down to these four things that everybody kind of agreed on. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is consensus and for sure these four things are important. So we'll start out with the first one, faithful, F, that someone is faithful. Now faithful means full of faith. Full of faith. They, there is something in this person that they are trusting God, that they are moving toward God, that there is faith that is filling their lives, and there's something alive in them. Uh, there's a woman in our ministry who applied to be a part of a leadership team in January. And we had an online application for the students to complete, and then an interview with someone on staff. And so uh, this girl, uh, the person who was discipling her had major questions about whether this girl should be a part of the leadership. And so one of the questions was, describe your relationship with God. And she described it as routine. It's routine. And that did not surprise the woman that was uh, spending time with her, discipling her, who had questions. And so during the live person to person interview it's like what did you mean by routine it's like well you know sometimes it's there sometimes it's not I mean there are days that go by I don't even think about God there are days that I you know but I really want to be a part of the leadership I really think this would be great and it's like I mean this is a wonderful woman it's just that her heart is not full of faith right now that she's not being filled with faith. There's nothing alive in her in Christ. And though she, would, she has great leadership qualities and skills, it's not like we could ask her to be a part of leadership. Does that make sense? And so faithful is important. A second is available. A for available. And um, I think this means that people, they're their uh, schedule, they can actually meet with you on a regular basis rather than once a month but not every month, I have time for you. Uh, that's just so frustrating that, that there is a, an availability, that they, they're at a point in their life that they can actually spend the time to learn and to try to do some things. And then the C is for chemistry. That uh, there needs to be some level of chemistry between you and the person who's discipling you or you and the person who you're trying to disciple. You don't want to be spending time with people that totally drain you. Now, this is a truth that I'll share that a lot of non-staff don't know. If you're on staff, sometimes you are obligated to spend time with people who totally drain you Uh, because, uh, yeah, I'll tell you this story. There's this uh, woman in our ministry. She was around all the time and every small group she was in, she exploded. You know, it was like the death to the small group. And so she wanted to be in a small group and it's like, oh, please don't let her be in a small group. And it's like, do you, we, we cared about her, we loved her, but she brought a dynamic that was just deadly to people. Her tongue, her attitude, no matter how much correction she got, it didn't help. And so a staff meeting, it's like, well, she can't, we've got to offer her something that will help her, but it's not gonna be a small group. So what's it gonna be? Well, someone needs to meet with her, one-on-one during a small group time. The small group that she wants to go to, someone on staff needs to meet with her one-on-one during that time. So who would that be? Well, it should probably be someone who's older and mature, someone who's been around the block a few times, someone who has insight into people's hearts and lives. It's going to be Brett. (laughs) So... I drew the short straw. And so I, you know, I cared about this woman and really wanted to see her make progress. It was her third year in our ministry and she was just spinning her wheels and killing people. And so I I said to her, well, we're going to meet together one-on-one. And she went, really, how come? I said, well, you know, have you noticed that you know, that you aren't friends with anybody that you've been in small group with? Any of the small groups they are not friends anymore? Yeah, I have noticed that. Well, I'd kind of like to to, uh, just kind of talk about that and try to listen to you and figure out what's going on in your life. And she's like, okay. So uh, we met, and I got to tell you, that was not a discipleship appointment that was a counseling appointment there's a huge difference and talk about being drained my gosh I would go home and Mary would have to give me a transfusion I mean it's just, ah, because it just really drained I think we made some progress in her life I really do and she would say that that we did um, but that was not discipleship. But when you're discipling someone, you want someone you have chemistry with. You want someone who is emotionally healthy, not dependent. And um, there is an exception to that. And that would, the exception would be someone like you saw on screen today, Larry Woods, who was blind. And having a blind person and you're sighted and you're with them all the time. That can be very draining. But I'm not talking about a, a physical issue. I'm talking about emotional draining. Emotional draining. So chemistry, is, it can't be draining. It can't be duty. You can't do it out of duty. You don't disciple somebody just out of duty. Um, there's got to be some chemistry. There's got to be a mutual connection. It cannot be unilateral mutual connection and and that's why I kind of like the pre-discipleship six-week period to say how's this working for you are you enjoying this are you getting what are you getting out of this you know and to be able to say you know well I think maybe there's a better fit for you if there isn't because you want it to be joyful and inspiring the t is for teachable that uh You want people who are ready to learn, that uh, they aren't a know-it-all, that they are ready to learn, that there's a level of humility in their life that says, you know, yeah, I really need to know more about the Bible, I need to know more about God, I need to know more about how to relate to other people, yeah, I have needs, and I'm teachable. Um, so those are essential qualities that I would look for. And, uh, anybody want to add anything to that? I think we, anything, Neil, Martha, what would you guys add? I mean, I'm sure you would agree with what I'm saying. Any any other qualities that you guys would look at? Maybe somebody takes initiative. Takes initiative. They're not passive. Yeah, it's kind of like, I've, I've been in, quote, discipling relationship where you arrive at the coffee shop and it's like they sit down and, and you get this distinct feeling that their body language and everything saying to the you, bless me if you can. <laughs> and that's, that's a lot of pressure. But to take the initiative, someone that would have questions and would actually be thinking, that helps. Thinking helps. Anybody else have something they want to add here? Okay, uh, so why do you keep meeting with people one-on-one? Why would I keep doing this? And, uh, well, first of all, the S is for I'm selfish. It keeps me in the game. One reason I love meeting with people individually, it keeps me sharp. It keeps me... um, keeps me going. And those are not, that's not pure motivation, right? The answer should be the reason I meet with people is because I love them so much, and I want to help them, and it's not about me. Well, I've just gotta be honest and say, part of it is about me. And I've kind of decided that 80% 80 pure motives is good enough. (laughs) And if I can hit 80%, all right, we'll do it. But when I meet with people one-on-one, and I'm finished, and walk away, nine times out of ten, I'm clicking my heels together, and I'm thinking, wow, that was great. That was great. And whatever I do when I stop leading campus ministry, I know one thing it's going to be is going to be sitting down with people and listening to them and discipling them. And, and it's just, it's, it may not help them, but it's sure going to help me, right? And uh, so I think you'll find that when you begin to invest in someone, that it will help you as much, if not more, than it helps the person you're investing in. Uh, A second reason why I meet with people one-on-one is it's powerful, it's powerful. Dawson Trotman, who started The Navigators, had a few axioms in life, like a few thousand, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) one of them was that is so true. People are different one-on-one than they are in a group. And so when you sit down with someone one-on-one and you're talking, there's no question in their mind who you're talking to, right? (laughs) Because they're the only one there. And that's one thing that makes it powerful is that they're tuning in. There's a conversation. But I think another thing that makes it powerful is that uh, what I was talking about this morning, you're valuing them. You're having vision for their life. Those very things that were transformational. Uh, so that, that's one reason I like to meet with, keep meeting with people one-on-one is it's powerful. Uh, the T, it's transformational versus just information. When Mary and I moved to Florida, I had spent two and a half years with Max Barnett and Gene War and whoever else that, that they drug around and they kept drinking, dragging people through that would meet us and uh, talk to us, and I got to Florida, and we were down in Miami, and 250 miles north of us was a guy from Oklahoma City that Gene War had discipled, and he was uh, with an organization called the Navigators, and uh, this, and so he was like the closest like-minded person that I knew up in. Uh, central Florida, and he was working with military people at a military base. So uh, Mary and I built a relationship with him, and we would drive up to uh, O'Galley, Florida, where he was, Melbourne now, and uh, spend a weekend with him, a Friday night, Saturday, drive back to be back at our church on Sunday. And uh, so he, after they got to know us a little bit, he said, would you like for me to disciple you? And it's like, yeah. And uh, so, um, he said, "Well, here's what you need. You need to get a, an eight and a half by eleven, three three-ring uh, binder notebook with eight and a half, eleven narrow space paper in it, and get uh, five colored tabs for the side. And uh, you'll need to get one of these pens, a rapidograph pen." that was a, a pen that had a real, it was like a draftsman pen. You could write in your Bible and it wouldn't soak through your Bible. And uh, so you need to get all that stuff and and come up here. And next time we meet, we'll meet at 6.30 in the morning on Saturday morning. Now you'll need to get up at 5 o'clock so you can shower and have a one-hour quiet time before we meet. It's like, okay. And so it's like, you know, I was kind of excited. It was like, I am going to get discipled. <laughs> and so, uh, boy, you know, I mean, I got up at five. I took my shower and I drank my coffee and I had a dynamite quiet time. And I go in and I sit down. I was like, okay, bring it on, Bob. And he said, okay, the top of your page, write the word Vision. V-I-S-I-O-N. Okay, so I do that. Okay, now write this verse. And he gave me a verse to reference. Then he he we looked up the verse and he preached me a little sermon on that verse and had me write some things down. And then he went to the next one and he did that, and then we went to the next one, and then we did that. And then it was 7:30, he said, Okay, your time's up. Now we're gonna meet again next month and you need to go, you need to do this very same thing with someone before we meet next month. You need to disciple them. And I'm leaving, leaving. I'm going, what was that? Because I had spent two and a half years with uh, Max and Jean and all these people. I didn't have a notebook. I didn't have a videograph pen. And I already knew how to spell the word vision, you know? (laughs) And it's like, oh my gosh. So I went back the next time and it was a repeat, another topic. It was prayer, (laughs) P-R-A-Y-E-R, dictation. And here's what I realized is that there's a huge difference between what had been given to me And what I was was being given in this discipleship thing. I was being given information that was great information. I was grateful for the Bible verses. Some of them I didn't even know they were there. But the transformation had occurred life to life as we interacted with life. And so when I meet with people, what I'm interested in is transformation more than information because i saw these uh air force guys carrying around their thick notebooks they had it in their notebook but they didn't have it in their life and i guess i had it in my life but i didn't have it in my notebook now which would you rather have if you're discipling somebody man i'd take the life in fact did you know Jesus didn't leave a notebook? That the Bible didn't really come to be until maybe 30 years after the resurrection. They began to write stuff and circulated around as these older apostles passed away and as the geography of the Christianity enlarged. So, yeah, I keep meeting with people because it's, there's transformation that occurs. Uh The M stands for multiplication. When you meet with people one-on-one, there's multiplication. Uh, You begin to reap more than you sow. You reap later than you sow. You you meet with people. You sow a seed. And then time goes by and and you begin to see fruit come from that. And it begins to multiply. Multiply that they then begin to meet with other people. They begin to talk to other people about what's changed their life, not just information, but this changed my life. And the G for me stands for gifting. I told you earlier I have a gift of exhortation, which really fits in well with discipling people. It's a spiritual gift God has given me that I can sit down with someone And listen to them, and Mary calls it an unfair advantage. Uh, She does not have the gift of exhortation. And I can sit down with someone and listen to them, and somehow they leave encouraged, right? And I don't know why, because it's just a gift. And I've just been using this gift for decades, literally. My daughter Laura was in kindergarten firstborn daughter is in kindergarten went to a parent-teacher meeting and the teacher said uh, so what do you do for a living and I said oh I'm a campus pastor at the university and she said okay where's your office I said well my office is in my home we don't have a building and she said okay so like what does your ministry look like and I said well we have meetings on campus in small groups, but the big thing is that I meet and talk with people, students one-on-one, and, and I give them counsel. That makes sense to somebody. I, give, I counsel students, and uh, she said, okay. She said, uh, she said, well, let me tell you why I'm asking this. We had an exercise in kindergarten. It's like, what does your dad do? Uh, your dad gets up, and he gets dressed, and he goes to work. And Laura said, no, he doesn't. And he says, well, then your mother gets up and she gets dressed and goes to work. No, she doesn't. And the teacher says, so then uh, what does your dad do? And Laura said, he sits around and drinks coffee and talks to people. (laughs) (laughs) She said, where does he get his money? And Laura said, the bank. (laughs) Well, I've got to tell you, I'm guilty of having spent over 40 years in Lincoln, Nebraska, doing what people think is nothing (laughs) and just going to the bank and getting money. Hey, what a life. Uh, (laughs) But there is a gifting here because when I'm involved in meeting with people and discipling them, I have minimum weariness doing that. I can just do that hour after hour. You can just take it, sit me in here, give me coffee. I need the coffee. <laughs> take a number and come in and sit down. I can do that hour after hour after hour. And when I leave, I'll be clicking my heels saying, that was one great day. Because that's not what wears me out in ministry. Um, That's gifting. And some of you, God has gifted you with that. And therefore, people, don't compare yourself with somebody else. I had a woman on staff who I think nearly had a breakdown because she thought she had to keep up with me. And she was keeping records I didn't even know about. You know, oh, he's meeting with X number of people. He's doing this and this. I'm going to keep up with him. I got to do that. I got to do that. She didn't have this gifting. And it nearly, well, who nearly drove nuts were the people she was meeting with. Uh, These girls came to me and they said, we can't take it anymore. We're, and I I didn't know any of this was going on. And it's like, yeah, we had to have a, a come to Jesus talk about what this was all about. The gifting really comes to play when it comes to discipling people. So don't. Compare yourself to people. Uh, Leroy Imes had this long conversation once about whether every person in the world that's a Christian should be discipling someone else. and uh, Because that would put a lot of pressure on people that don't have the gift that I have, or probably the gift that Neil has, I would assume. You have exhortation, Neil. Uh that puts a lot of pressure on people that don't have that gift to think, oh, I've got to keep up with those guys. I've got to do what they do. And uh, so I was talking to Leroy Imes about this, and Leroy said, I do believe that every person that's a follower of Christ should be involved in discipling people. He said, now, let's say there's Joe. He's a janitor at the church. He loves Jesus. He hears all these sermons. He knows people in the church. He said, in his lifetime, I would hope that we could help Joe enough to where in his lifetime there would be one person that Joe could meet with and help them know Jesus better and follow them through life. He said, I'd hate to think of how little joy Joe would have if his only contribution to the kingdom would be pushing a mop around the hall of the church. He said, there's great joy in seeing other people grow and develop. And I would think that he should have at least one. And there are some people, though, that need to see a hundred that would, would be that way. He said it's not about how many. It's that we're all on the same team trying to bring people to maturity in Christ. And that made sense to me. And so I don't know what your contribution will be in discipling people, but I'd say you're in a discipleship ministry and learn everything you can about helping people, and then help everybody you can, and uh, and do that. And yeah, Neil, weigh in on that. Do you agree, disagree, totally, totally. totally disagree. Totally. <laughs> It's going to look different for each person and it's going to, to, uh, uh, it's going to involve, it's going to, they're passing on a life, so they're passing on something different, you're passing on your life, they're passing on theirs. So it's yeah. To, uh, and that's where being a community is so important, that there are different parts to the body and the gift of exhortation is certainly not the most important gift. It needs the other gifts around it. If all that ever happened was people just sit and meet with me, may God have mercy on them (laughs) because I'm not able to give them all they need. They need teachers. They need prophets. They need people that will show them how to serve and give them opportunities to serve. And in our ministries, we really try to build it to where more than just the gift of exhortation is used to bless people and to bring people into the kingdom. Um, So I have another thing. What dysfunctions should a discipler be alert for? Uh, In anything, there are excesses, there are ditches, there are dysfunctions. And uh, the first one that I would say is pride. Pride. Um, There's something in me that when I get around to ministry that says, oh, here is... Joe Smith, he is my great grandchild that I am discipling. And this, you know, this guy standing here is 20 years old and this guy standing over here is 18. And he says, this is my great grandchild. I'm thinking, that's strange. That's very strange. Because some people keep a scorecard of, I help you, you help him, he helps him. And when I get to the great-grandchild, it's like, ding, 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 ding. I win. I win. And you know what? That isn't the scorecard at all. Uh, Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 2 to Timothy, who was a mature believer, probably in his 40s. He said, what you have heard from me, from Called a Timothy and trusted faithful men, third generation, who will be able to teach others also. And that was a challenge for Timothy to keep passing it on. It wasn't like the ultimate scorecard that you get to four generations. Four generations is wonderful, and uh, I have seen in my life with great joy four generations and probably more. I was in uh, China and uh, was with this buddy of mine that I'd spent loads of time with, and he was in China, and he introduced me to this man who was 90-some-odd years old. I forget, what did he call him, Uncle Somebody? Uh, we went to this guy's apartment, and he said, this is Uncle So-and-so, a 90-some-odd-year-old man. And he said, I figured it up. He is six generations removed from what you were doing in Lincoln. And here he is in the middle of China. And I thought, holy moly, who would have guessed? But, you know, that's not, that was not my intention at all. You know, I'm, I'm glad I saw that. It was an encouragement. But I did not write a newsletter on it. I didn't take a picture of Uncle Uncle Whoever. And put it in the newsletter and say, he's mine, I claim him. He's there because of me. See, that's just stinking pride. I had so little to do with any of that, it is ridiculous. And uh, so I just think you've got to put the clamp on that human nature to take pride in who you've discipled and how far it's gone. Uh, Second thing to be alert for is codependency and uh, codependency, it's like, you know what dependency is? It's it's like if you have a dog and there is a tick on the dog, right? The, the, The tick sucks the blood from the dog and the tick is dependent on the dog, correct? Codependency is two ticks, no dog. And a lot of discipling relationships are just people who come together and they're just doing something together because they need to do it for whatever reason. And you got to be careful of that. That it's not about taking; it's about contributing and giving to one another. And be careful of codependent relationships. And this would codependent would be where. Uh, you would say to me, I've got an internet porn problem and I want you to keep me from having this problem. In fact, I want to be accountable to you and it's your job to keep me from watching internet porn. And somehow in me, it's like, oh, great. That makes me feel so good that you would trust me with that. Of course I will make you do that. I mean, doesn't, isn't it, does, is this sounding sick to you? It's like, and so if you then fall and fail in, in, into internet porn, then whose problem is it? It's my problem because I let you fall into internet porn. And I want to tell you, discipleship, they're discipling things with accountability that seem to work that way. And it's like a kind of a sick relationship. And you try to avoid that. A third thing you avoid is power trip control issues. And uh, this is kind of a dysfunction. Uh, I'm the discipler. You're the disciplee. Okay, Let let me explain what this means. Okay, I'm the smart guy. You're the dumb guy, okay? And so here's what this means. It means I tell you what to do, and then you do it. That's a power trip. And and I know that there are people that... It's called discipling people, but it's just as sick as that. It's one person controlling another. Uh, look at... Uh, I think it's the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's see if I'm right on that. Uh, it's either 1st or 2nd. I think it's 2nd. Chapter 1, 24. Look at this. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Not that we lord it over your faith... But we work for your joy, for it is by faith you stand firm. Boy, is that clear? We're not lording it over your faith. I'm not smart guy telling dumb guy what to do. I'm here to help you have joy. It's your faith that you're going to stand. It's not on me. It's on you. I'm just your joy helper, making it easier and more helpful. Um, a, 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 the last dysfunction that I have listed here is being judgmental. J is for judgmental. Judgmental of those who are not doing it. And, uh, you know, when I look over 41 years of discipling people, I can say I have done all four of these things at one point or another. I have found myself in all four of these kinds of things, and they're all really bad for you. But to look down your nose at someone that isn't discipling someone, to feel superior to them, to feel judgmental, that just is a stench in the nostrils of God. And, uh, yeah, dysfunction. So, uh, Neil, what do you think about these four dysfunctions? (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, just be and walk out, you know, Yeah. That's therapy that you're give them some to do, and they change, you know. It's not you doing it for them. So. That's a great analogy. Plastic surgery or physical therapy? It's physical therapy. And it's it's painful sometimes. <laughs> it's hard. Great. And then uh, the Last last category I have here, and then we can do questions and then go to dinner, is what pulls a person into a discipling relationship? What is it that, that kind of pulls them in? And the first, the A is, aware, is awareness of their need. And John 6, 66 through 69, listen to this story. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus said, do you want to leave too, do you? He asked the 12. Now, this is so healthy because with Jesus Christ's discipleship, there was always a door out. No one was ever locked in, not one of them. And he said, so all these people were leaving. Did you want to leave too? And listen to what Simon Peter answered him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter was aware of his need to have the words of Jesus Christ. I cannot live without the words of eternal life. I cannot live without this. And so one thing that pulls people in discipleship is not getting them in the door and locking locking them in. But it's the pull of their own neediness i really need this that's why i ask people that i'm meeting with is this helping you is this working for you are you enjoying this do you look forward to coming and us getting together because if they don't boy there's the door there's the door i don't have to have them meeting with me you know and if they don't want to meet with me that's just fine god will give me someone who does and I think that's, that's part of the stance we have to have, that, that their need is p- going to be part of what pulls them into the relationship. And I think, Neil, that goes to the initiative thing you were talking about, that they've got to have a need. They've got to have some place that they feel like this is really doing them good, and they're coming here for that purpose. Uh, a second thing that pulls people into the relationship is the example of your own life. Over and over again, uh, the New Testament talks about the example of your life. Uh, consider, in Hebrews 13, 7, consider the outcome of their lives. And, uh, yeah, there's, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this tonight, but the example of your life is so powerful uh, that, that people would see some quality in you that is it's like, that's different, and I need that. I want that, the example. And then the last thing that pulls people into discipling relationship is love. Uh, people really feeling love. And Paul wrote in First this 2, 7 through 12, he says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. "...because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed." For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Man, I've got to say, the people that have poured into my life, they demonstrated that, and that's why I wanted it. That's why I long for it. That's why I would we'd call people, make appointments, and try to spend time with these people because that's exactly what they gave me. And that's what I want to give to other people. So, what? any questions? Did you have, I what time are we supposed to be done here? Uh, 5.50, so we're, head, we're done ahead of time, is that okay? Any questions, yeah, right? Okay, codependency. You got somebody. You can help me communicate this better. Codependency is when we are dependent on each other, rather than interdependent. In other words, um, a codependent person who's an alcohol—let's say alcoholism—as codependency. Okay, I'm an alcoholic. I love to drink alcohol. I get drunk, and my wife. She loves to uh, gripe at me, but she also loves to make it possible. She, She loves the feeling that I'm depending on her. Even though she kind of barks at me that I'm an alcoholic, I'm no good, I'm stupid, I'm not good for the children. But she doesn't take any steps to say the alcoholism has got to stop or I'm out of here. She lives with it. And so there, it meets a need in her life. He really needs me. And I need a woman that needs me and that I can abuse. And so that's codependent. In discipling, it's like, um, it's, it's not quite that clear in discipling. I think alcohol is pretty clear how that works. But let me think in discipling. Uh, a young guy, this has been... Um, in 1982, uh, this guy, his, he had a very strong, uh, cruel father, and he found something in me as a surrogate father that he really liked. And so we invited him to come and live in our home, and I thought, well, this is going to be just really healing for him. And what I realized that the dynamic between us was not healthy. That somehow I needed him to really like me, to feel good about myself. And he would do things that would make me mad, but I didn't want to stand up to him because I wanted him to like me. Is this making any sense? But... During that process of time, I realized that there was something not good here. So we had kind of a come-to-Jesus talk, and he moved out, and he was mad at me, okay? Which didn't make me happy, because no one likes for someone to be mad at them. And so then... uh, The next year, I had a staff member, that was at the end of the school year, and he had left, and we had had the conversation, are you okay with leaving? Yeah, I'm okay. Do you have bitterness toward me? No, I don't. It's like, okay, it's all cool. And so I took a new staff member to a town in Nebraska we met halfway for lunch, because I wanted him to know this guy, because this guy, we're gonna ask to be on his team. We met at this pizza place, and this guy, uh, I said, so, Monty, uh, you want to, yeah, we, I want you to meet Bill and we're, we're putting our team together for this fall. And I just kind of want to know what you, what your thinking was. And he said, well, my thinking is that I want nothing to do with you or Bill or anything with this organization. He said, as far as I'm concerned, you have ruined my life. And, um, I'm sorry that I ever met you. And I mean, it was just like, wow. Well, I came home from that. American Mary can testify. I laid on the couch for an hour when I got home. I was just hemorrhaging. And it's like, oh man, this is, this has gone south. This is really bad. And, um, you know, since then, there has been a, Healing. He gave us five thousand dollars in December, and I always accept that kind of healing. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, that healing is good. Anyone that wants to bring that healing is welcome. And um, but see, there there was a, an unhealthy thing in our relationship. I needed him to like me, and he didn't. He needed me to be good father. And we had these roles, and I could not be good father to him and him like me. So when I suddenly was bad father to him and kicked him out of our house, then he was bad boy to me and kicked me out of his life. Okay? <laughs> but he's the prodigal, he's back with his billfold, and we are so grateful. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so yeah, that's a cartoon version of what actually went on. So any other questions? Does that clarify codependency in some way? Yeah. Okay, any other questions? Yeah, Mary? I want to bring up something that came up in our women's group last time. Okay. Yeah, I know the drill here. Yeah, yeah. Well, one way I've dealt with it, I'm so grateful for the iPad that has books in it, and I can go to coffee shops to meet people, and when they don't show, I have my library right here, and I can read and redeem the time. I am always ready for someone to not show up. And uh, so I don't think you can eliminate people sh- not showing up, unless you come up with some tax thing where they give you money if they don't show up, which I may be working on in my retirement. But, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think if it's a, it's a pattern, it's just like that, you know, if you have a six week thing, you say, how's this working for you? The person said, oh, it's great. I, I love meeting with you and say, well, let me tell you how it's working for me. I'm really frustrated that uh, in the last four weeks, we've only been able to, to meet one time. And um, it just seems like, to me, that this isn't an important value to you, or maybe it's the wrong time. We can change the time and try something else. But I think just having an honest name the elephant in the room, rather than trying to um, hope that they're going to change. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yo. Yeah. After the initial six weeks, do you, how do you determine how much longer you need? Do you make well, thank God for semesters and summers. What was the first, if after the initial six weeks, how how often do you meet with people? So, Here's how I here's how I work it. It's like let's meet this semester. Okay? If I enjoy meeting with them, the next semester I'll call and I'll say when do you want to get together. If I don't enjoy meeting with them, I wait for them to call me. And often they don't. And the conversation is, "Hey, how are you doing? Great. How are you?" And they say they say to me, "Hey, we ought to get together sometimes." I'd love to. Give me a call. They never call. So therefore, I've learned something. They really didn't want to meet with me. And I haven't shamed them. I think shaming, we've got to stay away from shaming people. I don't want someone to meet with me because of guilt or shame. I want them to meet because they want to meet. And I'm okay if they don't want to meet with me. You know, I can watch another hour of HGTV. Hey, <laughs> learn how Mary's going to decorate the bedroom. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I have a good answer to that question. Uh, I think it varies semester to semester. If you're in school, it depends on your study load. If you also have a job outside of school, it suddenly becomes, for someone that's not a staff person, becomes a time issue and energy issue. Uh, and everyone's inner time and energy issues are different. And so I think you've got to balance that in your own heart in terms of what's healthier, what's not. Uh, I have a whole nother talk on the Sabbath that we won't go into today. But God thought a day of rest was really a good deal. A really good deal. And I don't think we honor him by driving ourselves into the dirt without rest, and we shouldn't feel guilty for rest. In our neck of the woods, one of the happiest times, it's not Disneyland, but it's close, it's called Snow Day. Snow Snow Day. Kids are jumping around like they just saw Mickey Mouse. And I am too, because Snow Day means that, that you're off the hook, that you don't have to do anything that you had planned that you can actually take time to do something you enjoy. And just think of what it would mean if you thought God said, I want you to really lean into your world and your life and give it all you got six days a week, and then there's a snow day for you. There's a snow day. I want you to do what refreshes you uh, guilt-free, guilt-free. I want you to enjoy it and drink it in. That's my gift to you. I mean, what kind Okay, your time... Okay, I have two minutes. I'll say this in two minutes. I calculated all the feasts in the Old Testament, including the Sabbaths, and it was 72 days a year, God said would be snow days. 72 days God determined these are party days did you know we have a party God you know God is a party animal <laughs> he wants us to party in fact he said you know how I want you to party so much I want you to give 10% to the, uh, to the temple and all the religious stuff 10% will be good but I want you to take 12% and I want you to set it aside for the parties I want you to go to to God's Disneyland with me. It's going to take 12% of what you earn. So 22%, 12% goes to the festivals and feasts, which was great food. There was a whole week where they did campouts they brought there the the feast of booze. It was a giant camp out. You take your family, family reunion. Kids come around play it. They're playing volleyball out there. I mean, it's just a great, it's just a great time. And God's in the big middle of it. And God's dancing. He's going, I love this, I love this. And that is God, people. That is God. He is the ultimate party animal. And what are we doing? We're beating our brains out, feeling guilty for not discipling one more person. I kind of think if we were more party animals, there might be more people interested in discipleship. <laughs> Duh. Okay. So that's my spiel. That's my gig on that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's go go party. Jesus, thank you. You're dismissed.